The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I hope you had a great weekend. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to everyone if you celebrate. Today on episode 263, we're going to talk about protein intake around the workout. A recent study found that there was no upper limit of protein intake that didn't increase muscle anabolism. In this podcast, we'll review that paper and talk about some of the nuances around dietary protein intake. All right, so let's start out with the paper. This paper was published December 19th in Cell Reports Medicine Journal by a research group from the Netherlands. To give you some background on protein intake and muscle anabolism, let's start out at the level of the muscle and work our way backwards. So muscular hypertrophy is defined in most studies as an increase in total mass of a muscle, whereas a decrease in total mass of a muscle is referred to as atrophy. An increase in muscle fiber size occurs when the muscle protein synthesis exceeds muscle protein breakdown for sustained periods of time. Now, muscle protein synthesis rates tend to go up in response to dietary protein ingestion and after an exercise session, particularly resistance training. On the flip side, muscle protein breakdown rates tend to go up during exercise and during periods between meals. Now, muscle protein breakdown fluctuates far less than muscle protein synthesis rates, which is more dynamic. Muscle damage due to training does happen to a significant degree, particularly early on in a training program. However, after the lifter acclimates to the training a bit, muscle protein breakdown levels are smaller, whereas the signal for muscle protein synthesis continues to be elevated from each training session. Overall, muscle hypertrophy seems to lag until muscle protein breakdown is minimized and muscle protein synthesis predominates. Now, it should be noted that muscle protein synthesis signal from exercise, it can be further enhanced if an individual is consuming enough dietary protein. The current scientific evidence suggests that somewhere between 1.4 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram total body weight per day is needed to maximize exercise adaptations. So things like strength, muscular hypertrophy, and cardiorespiratory endurance. Now, this level of protein is much higher than the current recommended dietary allowance, the RDA for protein, which is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. Many have suggested that this level is too low for maintaining muscle mass and function as people age, which I think is likely true. However, the average protein intake in the United States is somewhere around one gram per kilogram total body weight per day. And though these people would almost certainly gain more muscle and strength if they ate just a little more protein, the bigger issue than protein intake is that most people don't exercise. Now, what's worse than that is that most people who do exercise don't lift weights. In the U.S., for example, just under half of adults report meeting the current aerobic training or conditioning requirements for the physical activity guidelines, and only half of those, well, really less than half of those individuals also meet the requirements for resistance training, which is lifting weights twice a week at minimum. 
There's some good news though. The prevalence of those meeting the muscle strengthening guideline among U.S. adults has actually increased from about 17.7% in 1998 to 27.6% in 2018, with similar increases seen in both men and women. Thanks, CrossFit. Now, the prevalence of those meeting combined guidelines, so both the muscle strengthening and the aerobic or conditioning guidelines, has also increased from 14.4% in 1998 to 24% in 2018. So while this is all good news, it does seem like those who do not meet the aerobic physical activity guidelines, well, they're less likely to participate in resistance training than those who are aerobically active. So only 3.6% of adults who report no aerobic activity do resistance training compared to 43.5% of adults who are aerobically active, well, they also tend to do resistance training. Stats aside, yes, we still need to get more people exercising, and when they do, a little more dietary protein may be beneficial. I should make it clear, though, it's not like eating less protein results in zero gains, just less gains. For example, one eight-week study in female physique athletes found that the high-protein group who ate just over 2.5 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, that's over a gram per pound. They gained 2.1 kilograms of fat-free mass, that's all mass that isn't fat, so some of that's going to be muscle, whereas the low-protein group, who ate 0.9 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, that's basically the RDA, they only gained 0.6 grams of fat-free mass. Heck, there's even a study in older individuals with chronic kidney disease who are eating a very low-protein diet, about 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day who lifted weights and yet they got bigger muscles and increased their strength over 12 weeks. But what this study set out to do was to see if the 1.4 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day recommendation actually held up to experimental testing. Those recommendations come from meta-analyses that have pulled together different studies results and when combined have shown that higher protein intakes don't seem to reliably produce more strength, more muscle mass, or more endurance than a more moderate intake in that 1.4 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. A few studies do suggest that those who are very lean, those who are losing weight, and or those who are training a ton may benefit from higher protein intakes, but it's not really clear if that's true due to the limited available evidence. Just turns out there's not that many of those folks around to actually study, so we can't be sure. In general though, it's thought that 1.4 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram of total body weight per day will be great for most people. And this works out to be about 20 to 40 grams of protein per meal for about three to five meals per day. Higher protein intakes than that don't seem to be harmful per se or not get absorbed. Rather, they just don't further increase anabolic signaling for muscle protein synthesis. Rather, they just were oxidized. The life of the dietary protein is usually pretty brutal and can be short-lived. When we consume protein in foods, they are then broken down in the stomach and the small intestine into amino acids. And some of the gut and the surrounding organs can use these amino acids directly before they hit the bloodstream. This is called splanchnic extraction. But for the most part, the rest ends up in circulation, stopping off at the liver first and then into the bloodstream. Once in the blood, protein basically has two fates, either contribute to protein synthesis in the peripheral tissues like muscle or die. I mean, get oxidized as fuel. Now, in this study, the researchers wanted to feed the subjects different doses of protein after a lifting workout and then watch them for a longer period of time, 12 hours in this case, which is about twice as long as most previous studies that looked at what happens after you consume protein have previously addressed protein dynamics. To do this, the researchers used a pretty elegant study design. They took 36 active men aged 18 to 40. They did a one-hour workout where they did four sets of 10 on the leg press, leg extension, lat pull-down and chest press, with the last three sets being to failure. And then they fed them one of three experimental drinks. The experimental drinks were milk protein concentrate shakes, basically a protein shake. One group got 25 grams of protein. The second group got 100 grams of protein from the milk protein concentrate shake. And the third group was the control. 
they got zero grams of protein from the placebo. Now, the protein in each drink was labeled with a tracer that can be measured once the amino acids from those proteins make their way into the subject's bloodstream. So the researchers then did at least 14 different blood tests to see the level of amino acids in the blood at any given time. And by taking muscle biopsies at four different time points, how much of the amino acids actually made it into the muscle. So what did they find? I'm not going to read the whole paper to you, but a couple interesting things stood out to me. Thing one, the amino acid levels in the blood increased in a dose-dependent manner, meaning that the more protein that was consumed, the more protein was digested, absorbed, and made its way into the blood. Those getting 25 grams of protein had higher blood amino acid levels than the placebo, whereas those getting 100 grams of protein, those, that experimental group, had even higher levels than those getting the 25-gram dose, again, in a dose-dependent manner. If you were wondering whether or not the body could absorb 100 grams of protein from one meal, that's what the authors said was the most amount of protein you could potentially actually consume in a meal. They haven't seen me or Austin, I think, eat out. But in any case, if you were wondering whether or not the body could absorb 100 grams of protein from one meal, the answer is yes. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thing two that I thought was interesting, the researchers also saw that the labeled protein made its way into the muscle, again, in a dose-dependent manner with the 100-gram dose shoving more amino acids into the tissue than the 25-gram dose. Both increased muscle protein synthesis and total body protein synthesis rates, but the 100-gram dose did it more than the 25-gram dose both early on. So the first four hours, it was 20% higher in the 100-gram dose group. And in the later time period, 4 to 12 hours, where the people getting the 100-gram dose had muscle protein synthesis rates at 40% higher than those receiving the 25-gram dose. So if you were wondering if eating more meals with a modest protein dose would do better than eating fewer meals with larger protein doses, or if that mattered that much, this would argue that it doesn't. The third interesting thing I found was that the increase in protein oxidation was not elevated in a dose-dependent manner as predicted, 
In other words, it looked like the 100-gram dose didn't kickstart a bunch of muscle protein oxidation or otherwise body-wide protein oxidation to deal with the higher dose of protein that was ingested. Yes, it increased a little bit, but nowhere near as much as the muscle protein synthesis rate increased. More amino acids were incorporated into the muscle in the 100-gram dose subjects than the 25-gram dose subjects. When they directly measured like what was the rate of the protein that got oxidized versus incorporated into muscle tissue, it turns out that oxidation of dietary protein is a relatively minor fate at less than 20% of what's consumed. So you can tell your mom that you're not peeing out or burning all that protein. Fourth thing I found that was interesting, they also measured connective tissue protein synthesis. So that's what's happening at the level of the tendons, ligaments, and so on. Now we talked about this a little bit in the Is Collagen Protein a Scam podcast, episode 250. I've linked that in the description below, but basically one of the mechanisms by which collagen protein is supposed to work is by stimulating connective tissue protein synthesis due to collagen protein's high concentration of the amino acid glycine. Well, the data on collagen protein shows that it doesn't do jack for connective tissue protein synthesis, but in that episode, we also talked about how resistance training and whey protein supplementation affected connective tissue protein synthesis. Resistance training did seem to increase connective tissue protein synthesis, but whey protein supplementation on its own did not. In this particular study, both the 25-gram and the 100-gram doses of protein increased connective tissue protein synthesis rates higher than the placebo in a dose-dependent manner, with the 100-gram dose elevating them more than the 25-gram dose. So I thought this was interesting because effectively they showed that, yes, resistance training is going to increase connective tissue protein synthesis rates, but when you add protein on top of that in that sort of post-workout period, maybe you get an even higher amount of connective tissue protein synthesis. Overall, the finding that a higher dose of protein can be readily used by the body after workout adds evidence that the upper limit of what our muscles can use in the way of protein is probably higher than what most people thought. Now, the length and magnitude to which muscle protein synthesis rates were elevated in the different doses of protein further support a liberalized meal frequency. So less meals with more protein probably does the same as more meals with less protein. It just matters how much protein you're getting in maybe a 24-hour period. Although, to be clear, I don't know that there's anything special about the 24-hour period. It could be longer, 36 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. I would favor a longer sort of equilibrium period for total protein intake. But to me, that's kind of what matters most. How much protein you're taking in in a day, not so much how often are you eating protein um, outside of maybe uh, unique dietary patterns where people are fasting for multiple days on end and subsequently taking in less total energy, if that's the case. The connective tissue synthesis stuff was also interesting. Perhaps pairing an increased protein recommendation with exercise should be standard practice in PT clinics. I don't know. I just found that interesting. But still, I want to make it clear that this study does not suggest that higher protein doses above the current recommendations are better for training-related adaptations. Yeah, the muscle protein synthesis rates were higher in the 100-gram dose, and sure, protein oxidation rates didn't seem to ramp up. Heck, even connective tissue protein synthesis rates went up in the big boy dose of 100 grams. But that's all contained within the 12-hour study period, while the individuals didn't need anything else. We don't know how the results would change if the 25-gram dose had another three doses of 25 grams of protein to make the protein equivalent over the whole study period? Or what would happen over 24 hours if the individuals ate the same number of calories and protein, but with different meal frequencies? We also don't know if these findings persist day in and day out if repeated in the same individuals, or if the individuals adapt and accommodate over time. Most importantly, though, we don't know that this translates to greater amounts of actual muscle growth, strength, or anything else over days, weeks, or months. In fact, most of the data, uh, long-term data on training-related outcomes and habitual protein intake, don't show a benefit for those who eat more or eat more dietary protein than intakes of 1.4 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram of total body weight per day, which remains my current general protein recommendation. 
Now, resistance training and eating dietary protein both can increase muscle protein synthesis. While adding dietary protein to resistance training increases muscle protein synthesis rates further than either training or eating dietary protein alone, it's not clear that timing or meal frequency make a big difference. And again, I don't think that it does. In fact, a 2014 systematic review of 27 studies examined the effect of protein ingestion on muscle damage, soreness, and muscle function. And the authors concluded that overwhelmingly, studies have consistently demonstrated the acute benefits of protein supplementation on post-exercise muscle anabolism, which in theory may facilitate the recovery of muscle function and performance. However, to date, when protein supplements are provided, Acute changes in post-exercise protein synthesis and anabolic intracellular signaling have not resulted in measurable reductions in muscle damage and enhanced recovery of muscle function. Limitations in study designs, together with the large variability in surrogate markers of muscle damage, reduced the strength of the evidence base. Now, there are a handful of studies on both sides of the protein timing mattering, independent of the protein dose, but overall, I don't think it really matters compared to total energy intake, the total dietary pattern, training program and adherence to that, and individual preferences. Additionally, adding carbohydrates to protein does not appear to increase muscle protein synthesis rates or reduce muscle protein breakdown. Still, moderate or high-carbohydrate diets seem to produce greater improvements in muscle mass than very low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diets. Again, we'd recommend 1.4 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram total body weight per day split up into your preferred meal pattern. If you want a big dose of protein at a particular meal, you'll be fine. And if you want a smaller dose of protein at a meal, you'll be fine too. Again, it probably just matters how much protein you get in a given day. All right, that's it for this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I hope you have a great week. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.